This is a Federal News Network podcast. It took 8,000 words to do it, but the Biden administration's executive order on cybersecurity, the latest in a long list of similar executive orders, makes cybersecurity improvement a central element in IT modernization. My next guest, the former chief information security officer at the National Security Agency, says a shared or centralized cyber service could help get this job done faster. Chris Kubik is now with Fidelis Cybersecurity, and he joins me now. Chris, good to have you back. Good morning, uh, Tom. It's a pleasure to be with you again today. And you have read this executive order twice, cover to cover, and I congratulate you on your intestinal fortitude. But some themes and some ways ahead actually do emerge from it. And tell us what you took away in reading it. It certainly was quite the read, and there's a lot in there. So uh, it took two passes through it to really kind of, uh, you know, get to the full gist of what they were after. And, and really, there was takes a little reading between the lines here and there. But having worked in the government for many, many years, I, I was initially kind of skeptical about, uh, you know, uh, whether they'd be able to make progress this go round. Um, you know, this isn't the first executive order that's come out addressing cyber. But, you know, on a second read and kind of stepping back from a little bit, I, you know, I think there's some key elements of it that I saw as kind of game-changing elements. The first being, it's, it's pretty comprehensive. Past executive orders focused a lot on kind of the cyber hygiene aspects of it, a better patching across the government. But this is uh, much more comprehensive. They include that, uh, you know, the cyber hygiene and improving that. But they really kind of roll out this active defense set of capabilities. You know, they talk about deploying endpoint detection response capabilities across government. You know, another key theme there is being able to collect the data from across government agencies and centralize the collection of that data so that they can do centralized, you know, kind of monitoring and analysis of that data. And that, in my mind, is a game changer. And then they also focused a lot on the incident response aspects of it, trying to automate and improve incident response so that the government can respond much more quickly to an incident should we have another major incident, which I would expect that we would, given the the pace at which (laughs) we've been having incidents pop up. Yeah, probably tomorrow. But I guess the question (laughs) then becomes, can centralized approaches work for both, say, the Commerce Department, with its however many tens of thousands of employees, and the Marine Mammal Commission that has 13 employees. Well, uh, it will certainly be interesting to see how this plays out. Historically, you know, each government agency has kind of had the authority and autonomy to manage their own security, uh, monitor their own environments. Um, so there will certainly be some challenges just to, to sorting out the authorities for this. But I think, you know, where I see it as a game changer is, you know, as you pointed out, there's a lot of different levels of cybersecurity maturity across the government agencies are all different sizes. Some have very well-staffed security teams. Some have, you know, hardly any security teams in place. So I think the central will help to kind of level set uh, across the government and, and really help out those smaller agencies that just don't have the resources or the expertise to adequately monitor their infrastructures against these sophisticated attacks. And should that type of centralized service to do this, should it be located at CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency? Should it be at your old place? The NSA has a lot to offer here. It could be any one of, of a number of hosts. Where do you see it best being laid down? Uh, yeah, so that's a that's an interesting question, and we'll have to wait to see how that sorts out as well. Um, you know, I think it's going to come down to some of the authority discussions, and 
I think even if the government isn't able to fully centralize, I think even centralizing around a couple of different large organizations or groups of organizations would be an improvement over where things stand today. So, you know, they certainly talked in the executive order about maybe rolling up all the national security systems and having those be kind of managed and monitored collectively. And, you know, maybe that's a role for uh, NSA since they're the national manager for national security systems. You know, I would expect that, you know, DOD will continue to centralize and manage their own systems and certainly an intelligence community has a whole different set of challenges with the different levels of networks they have. So I would see them having a role in trying to centralize, but kind of where I would see CISA fitting in is, you know, across the, uh, you know, executive branch and being able to centralize all of those agencies. That's where you get into the cats and dogs that you mentioned earlier, you know, lots of small organizations where having somebody to, you know, kind of centralize and take control of that would be a good thing. We're speaking with Chris Kubik, Chief Information Security Officer at Fidelis Cybersecurity and former NSA CISO. And do you think that the experience so far in Homeland Security in particular with the Einstein program and the continuous diagnostics and mitigation, CDM program, continuous monitoring programs where they have deployed and tried to get specific tool sets out to the agencies, is there any learning from that whole process which goes back now probably a dozen years in some cases, that could apply to this centralized approach for information gathering and mitigation? Uh, Yeah, no, I think there's certainly lessons to be learned from past approaches. But, you know, I think the key for this is really to sort out those authorities, um, do that early on, and, you know, also kind of address accountability within the government, you know, kind of holding the different agencies, departments accountable to actually implementing the requirements and agreeing to share their data in a centralized manner. So I think that'll be key there. And then, you know, also, you know, I have to, you know, kind of give a thumbs up to the administration. You know, they've really pulled together an all-star team with uh, Ann Duberger and with uh, Chris Inglis and Jenna Easterly. I mean, you know, these are folks that truly understand cybersecurity from lots of different dimensions. They have lots of experience working across the government on how to, you know, affect change within the government. So, I, you know, I think they can help to drive some of these requirements and, and kind of change the way business is done in the government from the past. And Do you envision such centralized services, regardless of who manages them and even owns them, should they be in a commercial cloud or should they be in a federal data center? Should they be somewhere in DISA or wherever? That's it. That's a good question as well. I mean, you know, I think um, operating at scale across the government, if you start bringing a lot of this data together, it will be a large data set. So you certainly uh, will need a, a very scalable approach about how to bring this all together. You'll need an analytics platform to be able to process that data and, you know, kind of churn through it and make the right correlations to be able to, uh, you know, monitor and detect uh, these stealthy attacks. So that could certainly be done in the cloud. It could be done, be done lots of different ways. You know, the challenge will be, once again, back to the authorities, you know, actually getting the authority to bring all this data together. I think the actual platform itself, you know, the technology issues there are pretty well understood, and I think uh, that can be sorted out. And just a thought occurred to me, do you see blockchain having a role here in securing this large data set that you wouldn't want the bad guys to get their mitts on? You know, security for that data set will certainly be uh, important. I'm not sure that blockchain is the right technology there, but there are certainly lots of technologies out there for securing large data sets. Um, uh, Once again, we'll have to wait and see kind of what solutions. Uh, You know, I think you kind of talked a little bit about it, you know, whether this is a government function or pulling in industry and, you know, kind of leveraging their expertise, you know, and maybe even looking to industry to do some of the detection response capabilities. There are service providers out there that do manage detection response at scale for large corporations today. And those could certainly be brought to bear to help define this centralized model and to kind of backfill the government expertise on this overall monitoring approach. 
Chris Kubik is Chief Information Security Officer at Fidelis Cybersecurity and formerly had the same job at the NSA. Thanks so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. Anytime. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is to lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president 
uh, uh, deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was a beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life, and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and the the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. 
but the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet, or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.